Good morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in James chapter 1. James ends chapter 1 with a reality check, and I have to be honest with you, I was going to cover this, these two last two verses in one Sunday. This is now our third Sunday here, and I actually intend to stay here a while uh, because I think we're dealing with something that's very important for us to understand. Uh, let me just read these two verses to you, beginning in verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, be careful what you think you are. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is what? Worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. Pure and undefiled religion in whose sight? In the sight of our God and Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Here's the measure of genuine faith. Here's a pop quiz to see if you're a true doer of the word. If you think you're religious and you flunk, your religion is worthless. If you think your faith is authentic and you flunk, you are deceiving yourself. James says it boils down to three things. Number one, can I bridle my tongue? Do I control my tongue or does my tongue control me? Jesus said out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So your tongue is telling you what's in your heart. If your tongue is full of gossip, your heart is full of gossip. If your tongue is full of slander, your heart is full of slander. If your heart is full of judgment of other people, that's your heart. If your heart is full of cursing, that's your heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So James says, here's test number one. Can you control your tongue? Test number two. Do I show compassion to people who can't pay me back? James says you're to care for the two people on the bottom of the rung in that society. Orphans and widows. The people who could never pay you back. You're doing for people that you know won't be able to return the favor to you. They cannot reciprocate. That's the essence of true faith. It's saying, I'm going to do what God did to me. I'm going to give to somebody who can't pay me back. And then question number three. Do I keep myself unstained by the world? Now, we started into this last time, and if you weren't here, you need to get the message because I'm going to touch on it today, but I'd rather you hear it all talks about the world. Here's the definition of the world. World is the system controlled by Satan who operates through unregenerate people who are enemies of God. This world is controlled by Satan. Jesus called him the ruler of this world. He is the dictator of this world. Paul called him in 2 Corinthians 4.4 the God of this world. And he tells us there that he, he operates by blinding men's eyes to the gospel. And later in that book, he tells us he is a deceiver who disguises himself as an angel of light. 
And his followers disguise themselves as servants of Christ. So he is blinding people and he is disguising himself. What he's doing is promoting counterfeit religion. He's trying to make people religious, think they're okay, when in fact they are not okay because they are rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world is controlled by Satan and the world is a system. In 1 John 2.16, John tells us, all that is in the world, this is it, there's nothing else. All that is in the world is three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's lust which is desire, and it's pride. It's your desires and your pride. That's the world. It's your lust of your flesh. And what is the lust of your flesh? What does your flesh desire most? Pleasure. What is the lust of your eyes? What do you see and you want? Possessions. And what is the pride of life? Prestige. You see, all that is in the world boils down to this. I want to feel good, I want a lot of stuff, and I want to make a name for myself. I want selfishness, greed, and personal ambition. That's it. You know what's interesting? In many religious circles, that's a prayer that is acceptable. God make me happy. God make me rich. And God make me famous. Now, if you're praying that prayer, you know which God you're praying to? The God of this world. Because that is all that is in the world. So you see, worldliness is not so much an action as it is an attitude. It's not a place. It's a perspective. And when I, as a Christian live and love and choose those values of that system, selfishness, greed, and personal ambition, it stains me. So I want you to understand that the world is not so much what you do. It's why you do it. So when we ask the question, how do we stay unspotted by the world, the two most popular answers are these. Number one, it's separation by isolation. Now, the confusing thing oftentimes is that word world is used three different ways. It's used of this earth, and it's used of people, and it's used of this system controlled by Satan. For the Bible says, God so loved the world. That's the people. And sometimes we get the idea the world means people, so we're to separate from people. And that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about people. He's not talking about the earth. He's talking about the system. And the system is an attitude that comes up inside of you. And a lot of people try to practice separation by isolation. The problem is if you separate from the people, guess who you take with you? You. And you're the problem. We talked about the ascetics last time who, who tried to separate from everyone. The, the, the classic example was Simon Stylitis who, who built a 60-foot high pole and lived on top of it for over 30 years. I read a little more about him. He actually first built a 15-foot pole, then he built a 30-foot pole, and then he built a 60-foot pole. Got higher and higher and higher. Problem that he found out is that he had pride when he got up there, which is the world. If you take that view, you go, well, I guess if I built a 75-foot pole, I'd be more spiritual than him. 
separation by isolation. I remember uh, hearing the story about D.L. Moody, that he, he was struggling with pride, and somebody came to him and said, well, you know, if you want to really deal with your pride, what you need to do is get yourself a placard. And on the front of the placard, you should put, I'm a fool for Christ. And on the back of the placard, you should put, whose fool are you? And Moody took that challenge and made the placard and went walking through the city of Chicago all day long with his placard on. People laughing at him, trying to deal with his pride. Got home to his apartment, took the placard off, and thought to himself, you know, there's not another person in the city of Chicago who would have done what I just did. Pride is the world. A lot of times we try separation by isolation and we we get in our little Christian bubble and we try to hide in our bubble and stay away from everybody and think that's the way that we get away from worldliness. Worldliness is an attitude. In fact, it's interesting in in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22 where it says, flee youthful lusts. If you look at that verse, it's in the context of quarreling. You're to flee youthful lusts, and one of the youthful lusts is quarreling, and so he says you're to pursue peace. Sometimes the most exciting thing happening is the fight in the church, which is the same thing that's happening in the corner bar down the street, because worldliness is not a place. It's an attitude. Peter Marshall said Christians are like, a guy in a deep-sea diving suit, rather than being on the bottom of the ocean, being in his bathroom, taking the challenge of pulling the plug out of his bathtub. We are prepared by God. The Bible tells us we are equipped with the armor of God. And some of us are in our kitchen with our broadsword trying to kill flies. One of the evidences that you are practicing separation by isolation is that your Christian life is boring because you're not doing what you're called to do. You're equipped to be out in the world, and you're practicing separation by isolation. Second idea that doesn't work and is often used is separation by legalism. That's when we make a list of rules of do's and don'ts. We all have heard those. We've all got our little lists. No drinking, no smoking, no rock and roll, no dancing, no TV no movies, we make our list and we say, okay, this is how I separate from the world. I keep the do's and the don'ts. Last time we read Colossians 2.20, where Paul says, when you submit to rules like do not, do not, do not, it is worldly. And it's self-made religion and it is of no value. When you make rules, you are acting just like the Pharisees. The Pharisees means... The word means they're the separated ones. And they separated themselves by not only trying to keep the law, but adding rules to the law so that they would even be more spiritual. And Jesus pointed out that the Pharisees were full of pride and full of hypocrisy because that's what legalism always leads to. God never gave the law to make you more spiritual. Romans chapter 3 says he gave the law so that you would have the knowledge of sin to show you how sinful you are. And in chapter 7, he says the law 
actually produced in me lust of all kinds. Paul says, when I didn't have the law, I was doing pretty good. Then I got the law, and it started producing in sin in me. So the law is like a mirror. It shows you your sin, and it's like a stir stick. It gets down in your heart, and it stirs up all the junk in your heart. It makes you worse. You want to try it? Go have a T-shirt made that says, do not pinch me. See what happens. You're going to provoke sin in other people. They're going to pinch you. Like me saying, we've got a new law here at church. From now on, nobody is to look at this tie. No? I saw you. Nobody. See, see rules don't work. In, uh, in fact, look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 2. Paul says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you get saved and receive the Spirit of God by works or by faith? Well, we'd all say by faith. And then he follows that up in verse 3 with this. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you get that? We would all say justification is by faith. And then we get to sanctification and we go, well, maybe legalism will help me. Maybe a list of rules will help me grow in my spiritual life. And what does Paul say? When you take that approach, you are foolish. You are not justified by faith, or you are not justified by works, and you are not sanctified by works. I love Colossians 2.6. It says, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How did you receive Him? By faith, through grace. How do you walk in Him? By faith, through grace. And yet we're all guilty of this. We lead somebody to the Lord, and what do we tell them? First thing I want to do is give you a list of things to do and don't do. What have we done? We've said salvation is by faith, and now you've got to grow by legalism. Legalism will not grow anybody. In fact, look at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4. I alluded to this last time. He says, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. How do you fall from grace? You don't fall from grace by sinning. You fall from grace by adding legalism to your life because grace and legalism do not mix. And when you add legalism, you subtract grace. And this is something Satan gets us to fall into. We think, well, the way to protect myself as a Christian is I'll I'll, I'll create a little safety net of legalism and laws and rules, and that'll protect me from the world That net of legalism is not a safety net. It is a snare. Because what we do is we depend on our list and we're doing things in the strength of our flesh and we are not growing in our spiritual life because it happens by faith in who? The only one who has power to save you and the only one who has the power to change you. And when you get that legalism in your life, 
you become, I always say, we're all recovering Pharisees. You get that Pharisaism in you, and what is that? Pride and hypocrisy. You create the list, you live by the list, you become prideful, judgmental, and hypocritical. Funny thing to me about the list is, I, you know, I always struggle with this because I find all Christians have lists. They're not necessarily written, they're just sort of lists. You do this, you don't do this. When I was younger, first in ministry, I would travel some, and, and back then, uh, I remember going over to North Carolina one time, and I was used to one of the things on the list was no smoking, but I went over to North Carolina. Well, what is North Carolina? Tobacco Road. So you go to speak over in North Carolina, and you go out, and all the elders are outside smoking a cigarette. I'm like, well, what, what's going on here? Well, they grow tobacco here. So you have to take that one off the list, because economically it doesn't preach. Go to Napa Valley, guess what? Wine country. Go over there now. Everybody drinks wine. I asked the pastor, I said, well, you know, you know everybody, yeah, he said, half my congregation makes wine in their basement. So we got to take that one off the list. See, the problem is the list doesn't work. And the list is wrong for the most part. Because God's not trying to get you to keep a list. He's trying to get you to entrust your life to him. That's what faith is. And we walk by faith, not by sight. Worldliness is not a list. If worldliness was no smoking, no drinking, no working on Sunday, no, then what would worldliness be in Africa? See, worldliness has to be transported. And John says worldliness is just three things. It's selfishness, greed, and personal ambition. That's it. In whatever package it comes, it's an attitude that you have to stay away from. Some of us fall into this. We, we, we do something in our Christian life that's really meaningful. For instance, some of you may have gotten to a point in your Christian life where you say, well, I'm really struggling with, uh, with lust, and so I'm going to get rid of my TV set. So you get rid of your TV set. That's great if that's what God convicts you to do. What happens oftentimes is we get rid of our TV set, or whatever it is, then that becomes a rule in our life, and then we use that rule to judge other people because we say, he's got a TV set. He's not as spiritual as I am. And what have we done? We have turned what started out as a good thing into religion and pharisaicalism, and we are judging other people by something God may have convicted you to do. Legalism, or separation by isolation doesn't work. Separation by legalism doesn't work. So what does work? Well, let's go back to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Jesus is praying for you and me. And I want to point out two things that he says here. First is in verse 18. Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. You and I are to relate to the world the way Jesus related to the world. So all you have to do is look at Jesus. How did Jesus relate to the world? Well, in Luke chapter 15, we're told that all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus related to the world this way. Religious people were grumbling. Irreligious people were comfortable with him. And in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 18, Jesus made this statement. He said, John came neither eating nor drinking, and you say he had a demon. I came eating and drinking, and you say I am gluttonous and a drunkard. Which basically says you can't win. However you come, whatever you do, you're going to get criticized. Now, I would suggest to you, as I did last time, that Jesus would have trouble becoming a member of a lot of churches. So I've run into churches that have you sign a little covenant of things you're going to do to join their church. Jesus couldn't have signed it. Jesus certainly would have trouble being a leader in many churches because he was relating and hanging around with people that religious people are not comfortable with. When you look at how Jesus related to the world, Jesus spent significant social time with people who didn't know God. And he spent very little time with people who were religious. And when he was around them, he was condemning them as hypocrites. So he spent his time with irreligious people. He stayed away from self-righteous people. So my question to you this morning is, are you relating to your society the way Jesus did? If you're more comfortable with religious Pharisees than you are with irreligious people, then you are not only in the world, you are of the world. Are the religious Pharisees today grumbling about you? Or are they applauding you? We're to relate the way Jesus relates. You say, wait a minute. I thought we were to avoid every appearance of evil. I, I thought, you know, I, I thought we were to be careful about what we did because we were not to appear to be doing evil. My mom used to say that to me all the time. Not only should I not go to a movie, I shouldn't even be in the parking lot because somebody thought, might think I went. Not only should I not go to Primo Vino and have a glass of wine, I shouldn't be seen walking in front of the place because somebody might think I went in there. You might appear evil. Don't come home late at night because your neighbors might think you're doing something wrong and it might appear to be evil. My mom loved that line. You better avoid the appearance of evil. Does the Bible say that? Let me show you a verse. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 22. Let me read it to you in the King James Version. It says, abstain from all appearance of evil. There it is. Your mom was right. Abstain from every appearance of evil. Well, let me tell you, why my mom was wrong this morning. Three reasons. Number one, that's a bad translation and a bad interpretation. 
Because the word appearance, the word translated appearance in the King James Version is a word that means form, kind, or sort. And what Paul is saying is that sin comes in all kinds of flavors. You know that. You know that sin comes in actions and attitudes. Sometimes you have an action and you overcome the action and sin shows up in pride because you've overcome the action. Sin comes in all kinds of forms. So let me tell you what Paul is saying here and what he's not saying. Paul is not talking about how you appear to other people. He's talking about how sin appears to you. It's disguised and it's, it's subtle and it's deceptive and it comes in all kinds of forms. He's not talking about how you come across to other people. He's talking about how sin comes across to you. You are to abstain from sin in all its various forms and kinds. He's not even talking about how you appear to other people. He's talking about how sin appears to you. That's the point of this verse. So it's a bad translation and a bad interpretation. Let me give you another reason. It contradicts other Scripture. Because if I am trying to avoid every appearance of evil, then I am living my life to please people. And that's what the Pharisees did. They were all about appearance. And if I'm trying to avoid the appearance of evil to other people, then I'm doing what Jesus told me not to do in Matthew chapter 6. Because Jesus said, do not practice your righteousness before men to be seen by them. You see, this misinterpreted little phrase, avoid every appearance of evil, has become the banner for legalism. It's become the banner for an external facade. It's become the banner for religion. It puts my focus on outward appearance. And the Bible says man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at what? God looks at the heart. And who interprets the appearance of evil? Well, it's not really your lost neighbor. I mean, your lost neighbor could care less whether you mow the lawn on Sunday or not. Who is judging the appearance of evil? What's well, the Pharisee? It's the legalist. It's the person who says, I saw Dan Green hugging another woman at church. Somebody should talk to him because that appeared to be evil. It was my niece. See, if, you look at appear, if you're going to live your life and say, what does it appear like? You're going to be focused on external rather than reality. So it's a bad translation and interpretation. It contradicts other scripture. Let me give you one final one, and this is the kicker. It contradicts Jesus' lifestyle. Did Jesus avoid the appearance of evil? No. In fact, sometimes he went out of his way to appear evil. He worked on Sundays. He healed on the Sabbath day. He picked grain on the Sabbath day. He did it just to rub it in to the Pharisees. You look at Jesus' lifestyle, his friends were pimps and prostitutes. You look at Jesus' lifestyle, he appears to be a glutton. Every time we see the guy, he's having supper with somebody. He's having lunch with He's sitting down with people. He's eating all the time. The guy can really put it away. That's like his eighth trip to the salad bar. What's the guy doing? 
And he appears to be a drunk. Every time we see him, he's got a cup in his hand. His first miracle, he made 100, listen, 180 gallons of wine. The good stuff. Did Jesus ever sin? No. Did Jesus avoid the appearance of evil? No. So you and I are to relate to the world the way Jesus related to the world, which means we have to be around people who are lost and needy, who know they're sinners. And we could care less about pharisaical religious people who are already self-righteous because Jesus didn't go there. Second principle in John chapter 17 is that you and I are to be separate from the world like Jesus was separate from the world. Look at verse 15 of chapter 17. Jesus is praying for us. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now Jesus doesn't, want you out of the world. He doesn't want you on a 60-foot pole. He wants you in the world, but not of the world. You're like a boat. You're in the water, but the water is not in you. You are in the world. The world is not in you. And what is it that keeps us separate from the world? Well, he tells us. It's the Word. It's the truth of God. We're to be in the world, around the world, with the world, but distinct from the world. And the thing that distinguishes us is the Word of God. How does that work? Two things. Number one, our message is to be distinct. Now, what's the message of religion? Do good. If you do the best you can, and your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you'll get into heaven. That's the message of religion. And if you are practicing separation by isolation, or if you are practicing separation by legalism, you are reinforcing that message. Now you may say, I'm being an example to my neighbor. I'm I'm modeling Christianity before my neighbor. But the reality is, If you're isolated from your neighbor, all your neighbor is seeing is that you go to church, you're pretty good parents, you have disciplined kids, model citizens, and keep a nice yard. If you haven't said anything to them, that's what they see. Guess what? They see the same thing from their neighbor on the other side who is a self-righteous religious Pharisee. And if you're not telling them the message of grace, if you're not telling them the message of the gospel, then they're going to conclude what they already conclude, and that is Christians act like Christians. To be a Christian, you have to act like a Christian. Christians keep rules. They do certain things. They don't do other things. We are distinct by our message. It's not enough to walk through life and hope people will figure it out. We are to tell them. Now let me confront you that are on the other side, because some of you are here, you're loving this. You're like, yeah, get out in the world, yeah, preach it. 
Because you're out in the world, but you are the spiritual CIA. You're out, you say, yeah, I can go to a bar, I can hang out with people, but you never tell them anything. See, the question for you is, how many people have you led to the Lord? Because if you're not leading anything, anybody to the Lord, you are not a missionary, you're an alcoholic. You, you can only say, I, I, I led several pints to the Lord. What is that? And even if you do share, people are going to look at you and say, why should I listen to you? You're no different than me. Because you're of the world. The thing that sets us apart is, first of all, the Word of God as we speak it in our message, because when we give the message, it separates us from the Pharisees who have a message of legalism. And when we give the message, it actually is a divisive message. It separates people. In Acts chapter 4, the religious leaders arrested Peter and John. They said, we don't have any problem with your moral behavior. We don't have any problem with your church as long as you'll stay isolated over there. What we have a problem with is your message. We don't want you to preach anymore in Jesus' name. You can mention God. You can mention religion. You can mention good works. Just don't mention Jesus. What did they do? They kept preaching Jesus, and they were imprisoned, stoned, beheaded, and crucified. Now, what is it about Jesus that's so divisive? You ever thought about that? Paul tells us in Galatians 5.11, he says, But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still, crucif- or why am I still persecuted? Circumcision is the brand mark of legalism in the first century. He says, if I'm still preaching legalism, why are people persecuting me? And then he says this, Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. What's the divisive thing in the message? It's the stumbling block of the cross. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23, he says, We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. What is it? It's the cross that's divisive. It's Jesus crucified that is divisive. So you can tell people about Jesus walking on the water, healing the sick, that he'll be their friend, that he's a great example. But when you talk about the cross... It's a stumbling block. That Greek word means scandalon, or is scandalon. It means scandalous. The cross is scandalous to people. Why is the cross so scandalous? Well, because it attacks the very issue of the world. It attacks my pride. Because what, are the, what does the cross tell me? It tells me Jesus did it all, and I can't do anything. It attacks my pride and attacks my selfishness because what do I find out? I find out that I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So the cross attacks the heart of the issue, my pride and my selfishness. Religion doesn't touch that. Religion is very attractive because it says you can keep your selfishness, you can keep your pride, and you can just make some cosmetic changes on the outside and you'll be okay. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is, I'm going to come inside and change you inside. And I'm going to do all the work, and you're going to get none of the glory. I'm going to get it all. You have to humble yourself and come like a little child in simple faith to me. It's divisive. 
message. In John chapter 6, Jesus was giving a message and he was talking about his body and his blood. And he said, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody went, ugh. What was Jesus talking about? Talking about his death. I'm going to die. And you're going to have to take that reality into you just like you eat something. It's going to be an internal thing. And my death is going to be the answer. My body and my blood. And it says as a result of that, many of his disciples were no longer walking with him. See, the sinners... The prostitutes, the tax collectors came around. They were comfortable with Jesus. When the message got to the cross, some of them stayed and others walked away. Your message will divide you away from the religious Pharisees and it will divide people when you clearly give the message of the gospel centered in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you something, a couple things. Number one, make sure what offends people is the cross and not you. Some of you are not missionaries, you're mercenaries. The Bible says we're to speak the truth in love. The Bible says when we share with someone, we're to season it with grace to make it more palatable to them. Make sure you're doing it in a loving way with a loving attitude, in a humble attitude, so that people are not offended by your personality, that the thing that puts them off is Jesus and his crucifixion. If that puts them off, then you have clearly given the message. Let me say a second thing. The more you share the word with other people, the more they're going to ask you questions, and the more you're going to study the Word. That's the exciting thing about it. You see, if reading the Word for you is, a, is on your list, i got to do this. i got to get up in the morning, i got to read three chapters. Oh, God, three chapters. That's legalism. You start sharing the Word with other people, guess what? They're going to be asking you questions you can't answer. What are you going to do? You're going to go back to the Word. And you're going to find the answers in God's truth. And reading God's Word is not going to be a chore for you. It's going to be a passion for you. Because you are separating yourself by the Word of God and the message that you share. Second way we're separated by the Word is that we are distinct in our character. You see, it's not about a bunch of legalistic rules. It's about your character. And your character needs to go contrary to this world. What is the world? The world says selfishness is the way. What's the Word of God say? I'm to consider others more important than myself. The world says you're to be greedy. What's the Word of God say? It's more blessed to give than to receive. The world says... You're to seek your own personal ambition. What's the word say? He must increase. I must decrease. I don't want to be famous. I want to make Jesus famous. You see, you are to be in the world, 
marching to the beat of a different drummer and have different character. Classic example in Scripture is Daniel. He grew up in Israel, well-educated, good-looking guy. He gets transported to Babylon. His mom had to be shocked. He's now going to the University of Satan. He's fully immersed in the world. What happens to him? He won't eat the king's food, he won't bow to the king, and he won't stop praying. What was different about Daniel? He knew the word, he was committed to prayer, and he had an accountability group, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He was in the world, but distinct from the world. You are to be in the world, but not of the world. Close, but separate and separate by distinction. And let me tell you this. Any other separation is phony. Any other separation is irrelevant. You and I are to be relevant, and we are relevant when we are in the world going counter to the culture and values of this world. Sometimes I talk to a person and They're an unbeliever, and sometimes they'll ask me, well, how do I know Christianity works? And I'll say, well, do you know any Christians? And they say, yeah, I know. I work with a guy, right? I have a couple in my neighborhood. They go to your church. You know what I tell them? I say, okay, I want you to watch that couple. And if they're not different, if they're not distinct, then forget it. And if you're that couple, I'll probably come to you and say, I just based a guy's eternal destination on your, the fact that you're going to be distinct. Which is more effective with your unbelieving friends? Come hang out with 600 Christians. Or hey, I'll come hang out with you. Which is more effective? Come hang out with 600 Christians. You won't feel out of place. Or I'll just come hang out with you. But if you're going to go hang out with them, you've got to be distinct. Your tongue has to be distinct. Your compassion has to be distinct. And your attitude has to be distinct. Not selfish, but selfless. Not greedy, but giving And not proud, but humble. You see, those are all heart issues. We're to have a heart after his own heart. We're to be in the world like Jesus was, but distinct from the world in both our message and our character. I think that's why Jesus, when he sent the men out in Matthew 10, 16, said, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. What chance does a sheep have in a wolf's den? How do we go out in the world and not get eaten up? Well, you and I as sheep need to stay near the shepherd. We're to be in the world as sheep, depending on the good shepherd to walk us through it and make a difference in our lives.
And he does that because he's placed his spirit inside of us. What I find interesting is in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, be filled with the Spirit. In Colossians chapter 3, it says, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. And if you read those two passages, they have the same outcome. The way to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the Word. This is what sets you apart. And when we are filled with the Spirit and filled with God's Word, we are different make, difference makers in this world. And what I'm going to do in the weeks to come is I'm going to come back to this idea. And we're going to focus on what it looks like to be different from the world in character. We're going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit of God inside of us and how that fruit comes out of us and how people can see that difference in us, not because of our rules, but because of our character created by the Spirit of God within us. And as we close the service today, we're going to draw near to the shepherd, the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. We're going to take the bread and the cup as he told us to do, and we're going to remember the cross, that divisive message of the cross that says it's all his doing, it's none of my doing, and that I died with him so there's no more me in the equation. It's all about him. I'm going to ask you to challenge your hearts this morning as you take the bread and the cup to say, Lord, I don't want to be separated by isolation anymore. And I don't want to be separated by legalism anymore. I want to be separate and distinct because you live inside of me and your power is changing me both in my message and my character. He will do that because that's exactly what he desires to do. Let's pray. If you're here as a guest, you're welcome to participate. If you're a believer, this is not our supper, it's the Lord's Supper. You're invited. After I pray, as you prepare your heart, come and take the bread and the cup as the Lord leads you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the reality that you have saved us and left us in this world to make a difference. Lord, teach us what it means to be in the world and not of the world. Teach us what it means to be set apart by the word, giving a true, clear message of the gospel and showing the reality of your character in us as we walk with you each day by faith. And as we take the bread and the cup, thank you for the reminder that it's all because of the cross. It's all because you took our place on the cross that you provided us the capacity to be able to walk with you. Thank you that you are the good shepherd who laid down your life for us. We give you our praise and thanks today in Jesus' name.